I've entitled this message, What Does This Have to Do With Me? From John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. We're actually going to start with our scripture reading uh, this morning, and then we'll uh, launch into the introduction. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and it says this, And on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. All right, let's stop there. I want to ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Lord, we do thank you for an opportunity to uh, reflect on discipleship, to reflect on uh, your word and, and on your son, Jesus Christ. And we do thank you uh, for our uh, blessed Savior. Uh, thank you for sending us that, that perfect lamb, um, that uh, the light of the world, uh, the door to the sheep, that good shepherd. And so thank you for Jesus Christ who willingly uh, laid down his life uh, for us so that we might truly have uh, life. Lord, we do pray that as we meet together, uh, that you would be magnified, that you'd be glorified, that as we look at uh, really kind of this first discipleship meeting that he has with his disciples, uh, that we too uh, would take away some lessons uh, that we can apply to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the calling of the first disciples, and uh, we noted uh, that Jesus really fostered a relationship uh, with his disciples before, before he ever called them. And so uh, we talked about in the fact that uh, in Matthew and Mark, the, we get a summary of the calling of the first four disciples, and it uh, went something like this. And so we talked about this last week, but it went something like this. Jesus said, follow me, and they immediately stopped what they were doing, and they followed him. That's, that's exactly what Matthew and Mark say. Immediately, they stopped and followed him. And so then we went back and we looked at uh, both the John account as well as the Luke account, and we shed a little bit more light on the calling of the first disciples. And we realized that God actually, or, or Christ tries to say, uh, Jesus actually started a relationship with some of these disciples prior to the calling of them when they were there on the boat. And then that Luke account gives us a, a more rich example of what happened as uh, Jesus talks to Peter and uh, there's a whole uh, episode with the fact that Jesus says, lower down your net. And I remember uh, Peter says, well, I just don't want you, um, I don't want you to be surprised if we don't catch anything because we haven't caught anything all night. But if you want me to do that, Christ, that's what I'll do. And so uh, uh, sure enough, Peter lowers down the net. And what happens? They catch so many fish. They have to call in their friends, uh, their partners uh, to help them with the fish because their boats are sinking and uh, they're able to get back. And Jesus says, hey, if you think this is amazing, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so immediately uh, they follow him. Now, right after the, that uh, calling or that, that uh, time where Jesus talks to, um, I guess there's uh, Andrew and John. Those are the followers of John the Baptist that we looked at last week. And then remember, Andrew introduces Christ to uh, Peter, and, uh, or Simon was his name at that time, and uh, Christ changes his name. 
But uh, John also gives us a calling of a couple more uh, disciples. And so this is kind of part of the introduction because it's going to launch into about uh, into what we're going to look at today. And so I'll look a little bit back in John, John chapter one, starting in verse 43 and notice what the word of God says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was uh, from Bethsadar, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right, we'll stop there for a second. Now, Philip does exactly what we saw Andrew do last week. And so uh, Andrew uh, was introduced to uh, Jesus, if you remember. So uh, Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist did his job. His job was to prepare people to follow Christ. And as soon as uh, Christ is identified, as soon as John says, this is the Lamb of God, uh, both John and Andrew stop following John the Baptist, and they start following Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you following me? And they're like, well, we're just wondering, where are you staying? And the idea is, we want to follow. We want to learn from you. We want you to teach us. And they stay there that night. And then the very next day, Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon. That is Simon Peter. It says, we have found him. We have found the Messiah who we call Christ or Jesus Christ. And we see the same thing happens with Philip and Nathaniel. And so Philip uh, is introduced. Uh, uh, Christ calls Philip. And immediately he goes and finds Nathaniel and he says, we have found what Moses and the prophets wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then notice Nathanael's reply in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. All right, now why would Nathanael answer in that way? Well, we need to remember a little bit of, of uh, things that are happening at this time. And, and one thing that is true is in Galilee, uh, they were looked down on, the rest of the Jews looked down on that area because they saw them as uh, partnering with Gentiles. This was a Jewish-Gentile nation. And so uh, for the Jews, they were like, Galilee, yeah, that's like, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, don't be offended, but it's like the California of the United States, all right? And so um, that's, that's actually what they're looking at. And then it gets even a little, a little bit more, and he says, but he's from Galilee, or, or he's from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth would be like maybe like the San Francisco of the United States. And so uh, the, this is Nathaniel's response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so maybe we might have the same response as somebody said this to us. Maybe they said this. There is some great revival happening in California. And where it's starting is in San Francisco. And you, you were to say, yeah, right. That's a good one. As a matter of fact, uh, if we talked about maybe some other state, we might be saying, oh, yeah, that's great. But if we said something about our own state, we'd say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And that's kind of Nathaniel's response here is he, remember, he is from Galilee. He understands the people of Nazareth, and he says, ah, yeah, yeah, right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so what ends up happening is, is Nathaniel actually has a conversation with Christ. 
And after the conversation, Nathaniel believes. And it's actually something very small. And uh, Christ is, uh, Nathaniel's coming, and Christ says, Nathaniel. And he says, well, how do you know my name? He says, well, I heard you talking to Philip when Philip was talking to you. And he goes, wow, you are uh, the king of Israel. But that's really just the beginning of what Nathaniel is going to see in his life. And that's actually what Christ uh, says. And so this is Christ's reply in verse 50. So look down there at your Bible in verse 50. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And so uh, Christ, in a way, said, hey, hold on to your hat. Hold on to your tunic because we're just getting started. If you think that this is something amazing, you're going to see some amazing things if you follow me. And so Nathaniel does uh, follow uh, Christ. He is one of those that are there uh, at the resurrection. And notice there in verse uh, 51, and, and Christ says something remarkable to uh, this man. And he says this, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so what Christ does, he, he draws some pictures from the Old Testament, from Genesis uh, 28, uh, I believe. Genesis 28. And so uh, Jacob has a dream. And in his dream, he has a dream of a ladder that goes from heaven to earth. And there's angels going up and down the ladder that extends from heaven, uh, from heaven uh, to earth. And so Jesus uses that, that same idea here. But instead of that ladder reaching from heaven to earth, that ladder reaches from heaven to Christ. And so what Jesus is, is telling Nathaniel is you're about to see some amazing things. And what you're going to see is I am that way, that truth and the life. I am the door to heaven. I am the light of the world. And so if Nathaniel thinks just the fact that Christ saw him under the fig tree and, and knew his name. And, and if that seemed amazing, Nathaniel Hold on to your tunic because you're going to see some amazing things. And so Nathaniel did follow Christ. Now, I give you that as an introduction because of where Nathaniel started and then where he ended up as a disciple and there he was there at the resurrection. And so here we have a man that was kind of a doubtful in the beginning. Okay, so his, his reply was, yeah, right. Like the Christ would come from Nazareth of all places. And so uh, he uh, did not trust right away. But then Christ started doing some things in his life, or Jesus started doing some things in his life. And uh, he began to believe and believe and believe more. And that's actually where it leads us today. And today we have the wedding of Cana. This is really uh, Christ's first uh, lesson in discipleship. Uh, to his his new disciples. So not all 12 are there yet. Um, there's just a small group there right now, but he is teaching them a lesson. A lesson through example. And so uh, we see that as we get started in verse one, he says this, and on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And in verse two, and uh, Jesus was also invited to the wedding uh, with his disciples. 
All right, so there's a wedding day, and we're kind of setting the stage here for this first discipleship uh, lesson. We have Jesus, we have Mary is there, we have his disciples are there as well. They've all been invited to uh, this, this wedding. And uh, there's something that uh, we need to understand about this wedding that is a little bit different than the weddings that we have today. Our weddings today, uh, they last for a couple of hours, maybe a half a day. Maybe if you went to a really long wedding, maybe it'd be a full day. That would be a really long wedding. Uh, but at this time, it would be like a week or two weeks. And so their weddings were really a, a celebration. And, and the, the family uh, was expected to provide food and wine uh, for this whole celebration of, of the union of these two people coming together. And it was a big celebration. And so it wasn't just a couple of hours. It was really like a week or two week uh, celebration. And so we have Mary, we have Jesus and the disciples. And uh, you might think to yourself, well, this is kind of a weird place to have kind of your first uh, discipleship meeting. Uh, but this is where Jesus chose. He's about to teach his disciples something at a wedding of all places. Now, there's a lot of questions about, like, why was Mary at this wedding? Why was Jesus at this wedding? And uh, we don't know it exactly. Now, it is in Galilee. And where was Jesus from? Well, Nazareth of Galilee. So maybe they knew these people that were getting married. Maybe they were even relatives. Uh, we don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us. But they are invited uh, to this, this wedding, and so they are a part of uh, this wedding. And Jesus is about to teach them some life lessons through his example. Now, I am, I grew up uh, with three brothers. I am the oldest of three brothers. So I have two younger brothers. And so I am an 80s child. And so we watched, like me and my brothers, we were watching like um, uh, Three Ninjas. Uh, we watched Three Ninjas. We enjoyed uh, that movie because it was three boys, and they actually kind of went after me and my three brothers. So we enjoyed movies like that or maybe like Ninja Turtles. But one movie that came out in, in the 80s, and I think I was a couple years old uh, when, when the movie came out, was The Karate Kid. And so if you've seen The Karate Kid, you know uh, you have Mr. Miyagi and you have uh, Daniel Russo. And, and uh, Daniel Russo is kind of getting picked on as school is getting beat up. And, and so um, uh, Mr. Miyagi is going to teach him some karate. So he says, oh, well, come over to my dojo. I'm going to teach you some things. And what does he do at the very beginning? He has him do all kinds of jobs. He's like, okay, see this fence out here? Paint the fence. He goes, okay, I'm going to paint the fence. See these cars out here? I want you to wax the cars. And he waxes the cars. Then, you know, as the movie progresses, that eventually Daniel Russo goes, you know what, this is a waste of my time. You're not teaching me anything. I mean, I painted a fence. I know how to paint. And you taught me how to wax a car. I could wax cars. But I didn't learn anything. And then Mr. Miyagi uh, shows him what he has learned. He uses some real-life things, such as waxing cars. You remember, wax on, wax off. And so he's teaching him something about karate that he didn't even realize that he was learning. Now, of course, Mr. Miyagi is no Christ, all right? He's, he's not Jesus. But in a similar way, we can be similar to Daniel Russo, where Jesus is teaching his disciples something, and maybe we have overlooked what he was teaching. Just like when Daniel was painting the fence up, and down when he was waxing the car he didn't think he was learning anything from doing regular things but 
Mr. Miyagi was teaching us something, and I think Christ, no, I believe Christ is also teaching his disciples something at this first event that he has with his disciples. So let's continue to set the stage here, all right? Notice in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, all right? So this is a big deal. Um, this, was, uh, this was important uh, when, when the wine ran out, uh, they were supposed to have enough food and wine. Uh, with the wine running out, this would be an embarrassment to the married party and to their families. Mary knew this. Obviously, they were invited to this party, and so they knew that either the families or the married couple, and so they were close to them in some way, and so Mary realizes that Jesus can help. And then notice Jesus' reply, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. All right, now let me stop there for a second, and let's talk about this right here, all right? The way that Jesus refers to his mom. Now, we, in our culture today, we would never refer to our mom as woman, all right? And so uh, we might say this as, as a child, okay? So my girls might say this, Mom, can you help me? All right? That would be the correct way in, in our society today. Mom, help me. But what would never come out of my girl's mouth is, woman, help me. All right? You can see kind of the difference there. Mom, help me. Woman, help me. And so in our culture, if we were to, to hear a child calling their mother woman, we would say, well, that's kind of disrespectful. I don't think that's appropriate language to have. But, but, you know, that's not what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is, is, is not talking down uh, to his mother, all right? Matter of fact, he uses, and, and John records this for us, and John decides to record a woman rather than a mother. Now, did Christ refer to uh, his mother as mother? Yes. And, and then apparently he also referred to her as woman. But this was not to be something that he was... He was uh, disrespecting her. Matter of fact, he uses this later on. John records again uh, this same phrase, woman, later on. And so this comes from uh, John chapter 19. Let me set the stage for us. All right, Jesus is on the cross, and Christ, uh, Christ is there on the cross, and, and Mary, his mother, is there, and she sees what is happening. All right, now, as you can imagine, as a mother, this would be, uh, heartbreaking for you and Christ could see his mother from the cross he realized it was heartbreaking for her and so notice there in verse 25 but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary and the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved and who was that disciple well that's John that's the writer of the gospel here the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother woman Behold your son. And so what he is doing, what Christ is doing is, is he's looking down at his mother. He sees that his mother is broken up, that her heart is, is broken watching her son uh, die there on the cross. And, and he sees John, his, his beloved disciple, and really he says, you know what? I'm not going to be able to take care of Mary anymore. John, take care of Mary. And he uses the word woman. Again, he's not using it in, in, like, uh, in a disrespectful way, but actually in a loving way. And so in our culture today, if we were to use woman for mom, we would say, oh, that's disrespectful. 
That's not what is happening here. Christ is actually using a, a, a term that really shows love uh, for his mother, the same term that he used uh, there on the cross. So I need to talk about that at the very beginning because I don't want us to walk away saying, wow, I can't believe Christ talked to his mom that way because uh, that's, that's not the case, all right? That's not the case. Now, let's continue on with what else he says because, again, this could be taken the wrong way. There in verse 4, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. All right, so woman, what does this have to do with me? All right, again, we might stop and we might say, well, that, again, that kind of doesn't, that doesn't sound like uh, the r- right response. But it, it's really a response of, now, I do have the power to do this. But what Christ is doing is he's really laying a foundation between who is his absolute authority in his life. Now, in the Jewish culture, uh, the mother wouldn't, would have been able to tell their children uh, to do things and really pressure them uh, to do things. But what Jesus does here is he says, really, you should not be pressuring me to do things. And really what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples and he's really teaching us today that really his number one leadership was his heavenly father. Matter of fact, if you look, the wor- look up the words that he said when he walked on earth, he said over and over and over again that his will or that his father's will was his will, that his father's words were, were his words. And whatever he was doing, he was in obedience uh, to his father. And so that's our first takeaway is, as we think about this conversation, that Christ was obedient to God and as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be obedient to God as well. And so Christ, he realized that the, the number one authority in his life was his heavenly father. And we too, as we think about our number one authority in our life, that ought to be our heavenly father as well. That ought to be God. Notice there in verse 5, And his mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. I should stop there and just say that I think that Mary got the hint in in Christ's reply because we don't see that Mary continues to pressure Jesus into doing anything. Instead, what she says is, I'm going to step back and I'm going to give you leadership over this whole thing. And whatever you decide to do is is what you're what you're going to do. And so she tells the the servants there. Um, do whatever he tells you. He is in full leadership now. And we should note that this is the last time that Mary comes up in our passage. So Mary um, really instigates uh, the turning water into wine, uh, but then she doesn't show up anymore. The rest of this is Jesus Christ doing it himself. Now we should look at one thing that Jesus Christ did say right before that. It says, my hour has not come yet. All right, and so what is Jesus referring to when he says, my hour has not come yet? Well, what he's talking about is really revealing to everybody else that he is the Messiah. There was a certain time that that was to happen, and that time was not yet. And so Jesus' reply, again, shows that he is not under Mary's leadership, but really under his heavenly father's leadership. And so it is not the timing that his father has appointed. And so he is ultimately obedient to his heavenly father first, 
and then really his earthly mother second. And we see that in that reply, all right? And so uh, moving on back there to verse 4, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And what we see there is a love for God because he does it kind of secretly, all right? He does what his mom wants. He's honoring his mother, but at the same time, he's doing what his father wants by allowing it to be a secret so that he doesn't make himself unknown. And so what he does is he loves God first, but then he loves others as well. And so we see a love for his heavenly father as well as a love for his mother. So obedience to his mother and obedience to his father. And so he shows that love for God and a love uh, for his mother. Look there in verse 6, it says this. Now there was six stone water jars that were the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 12 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. All right. And so uh, we have here uh, the, the instructions that he gives to the servants. Now, no doubt the master has uh, tasted uh, many wines, but what we see here is the response from the master of the feast, and so we see this in verse 9. And the master of the feast tasted the water now before the wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, and the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Again, Jesus didn't allow this miracle to be known to everybody, all right? There was only a small group that knew it, Mary is the one who uh, promoted this whole thing, and so what she obviously knew, that the servants knew, and then what we'll find out at the very end is that the disciples uh, knew as well. So a very closed group, honoring both his mother as well as his heavenly father. And then verse 10, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and the people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. When you think about uh, loving uh, God first and really being obedient to God, uh, sometimes in life, and, and we may not even mean to do this, but sometimes it does happen, uh, we allow people to have more authority in our lives than we really ought than, than they really ought to have. And really, sometimes uh, in life, we do feel like really the Lord wants me to do this or that. But then maybe someone comes alongside us and says, no, don't do this or that, because it's not acceptable. I mean, if, if you go and share the gospel, I mean, what will, what will people think of you? If, if you're like one of those Christians that shares the gospel, and, and that's, don't do that. And so sometimes uh, we want to appease others rather than really being obedient to the Lord. Sometimes that happens within a parent-child relationship as well. So sometimes, uh, as, as kids, we want to do what our parents want us to do. And sometimes, uh, there's young people that maybe they do feel called into missions or are into the ministry, and their parents uh, try to either talk them out, oh, you're not going to make any money doing that. Why would you ever want to raise your, your family in another country like the Utleys? I mean, why would you, you want to do that? And they have a tendency to... Talk them out of that. But you know, Jesus 
when he thought about his love for his father and his love for Mary, now he loved Mary. That was his mother. But the greatest love in his life was his heavenly father. And he wanted to be obedient to his heavenly father. Matter of fact, there's a man, uh, John Payton. I don't know if you're familiar with John Payton. John Payton uh, was a was a missionary, and uh, he was born uh, in May 18, 1824. And God called him into missions, and he said yes. There are some interesting things about where God called him to. God called him to the islands of New Hebrews. They're east of Papua New Guinea. Let me tell you what these these islands were known for. All right. While violence and cannibalism quickly became the reputation uh, reputation of this region, Hayton's missionary purpose remained unmoved in the face of many efforts to discourage him from going. Matter of fact, some of the people in his church, when he surrendered to go to the mission field and said, this is where I believe God is leading me to go. There were people that came up to him and said, don't do that. They're going to kill you and eat you. That's what people told him. And a matter of fact, it was true that some missionaries did arrive in, in that place, and they were killed the very same day. Matter of fact, there were two missionaries that arrived, and they were killed that very same day. And so uh, what the people in the church were, were telling John uh, was, was credible. I mean, they didn't want him and to go to a place and die. Matter of fact, some of them maybe even thought, John, you're throwing your life away by doing that. But John didn't let that prevent him from going. And, and his, this was his reply to some of that discouraging uh, replies that he got from his own church. And this is what he said. He said this. This is what his reply was. It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of the risen Redeemer. And so John said this, you know what? Whether I'm eaten by cannibals or I'm eaten by words, I'm going to get the same body that you get. It's not going to be any different. And so John, he did go. He did go to those islands. And you know what? Mission life was hard for John. When he got to the island, he uh, very soon after he arrived, his wife passed away. Soon after that, his, his little boy passed away as well. But you know what? John had that calling on his life, and he was obedient to his heavenly father, and he stayed there, and he continued to serve. And it is recorded that he was able to evangelize that whole island, and many of them, if not all of them, came to Christ. And so there was a church that said, hey, don't go. You're going to throw your life away. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. And he said, no, my first love and my first obedience is God. And he went and he did. And I tell you, his life was not easy by doing that. But God used him in a great way. And he did write a, uh, a missions uh, biography, and I encourage you, if you've never uh, read John's uh, uh, biography, to, to read that, and it'd be an encouragement uh, to your life. 
And so uh, love God first, all right? Be obedient uh, to, to the Lord and then love God first. And uh, don't mix uh, those two things. All right, uh, the verse 10 here, as we read verses 9 and 10, it is uh, Jesus turning uh, water into wine. And really, the master has some sound logic here. Serve the good wine first, and then the poor wine last. Start off the par- party on, on, a, on your best foot, and then um, if you, when you run out of the bad wine, go ahead and serve uh, the good wine. Or the, once you run out of the good wine, then you'll serve the bad wine. And why? Because this party is going to go on for days. All right, and so uh, this is some some sound counsel. Uh, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now I do need to stop right here and say that there are some Christians. They've taken this uh, passage and and uh, they said, "Well, see, uh, this is uh, the 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 pass on uh, drinking freely." That, that it's okay to get drunk because Jesus turned uh, water into wine. It's, it's right here. Jesus performed this miracle at the wedding. And so uh, this is, this is uh, Christ's seal of approval on indulging in alcohol is this um, turning water into wine. But when we think about that, we're actually um, misunderstanding exactly the cultural context as well as our context today. Number one is we have done a really good job in the world today of how to bottle wine, all right? That is not something that they had in Jesus' day. Through science and technology, we have found just how to uh, take some, some out or some, uh, you know, I don't really understand all of what goes into this, to be honest, but fermentation and different things that they mix in there and that creates alcohol and if they do it just the right way it creates even more alcohol and this is not the science that jesus was using all right this that's not the science they were using in that day how can we make the best most potent alcohol Uh, they were just trying to get by from day to day and they were using alcohol mixed with water to kill the bacteria in the water because we didn't have or they didn't have what we have today, which is clean drinking water. I should say what we experience here in America today, because around the world uh, still they have some pretty bad water, uh, unlike us here in America. So in the cultural context, they don't have the technology uh, that we have today. All right, They're not really bottling the water to sell it for uh, hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, I guess, is, maybe a really good bottle of wine. That's not what they're doing. Uh, they're just trying to make it through um, a day. And so that is the context here. And so Jesus is not making a bunch of wine so that people could get uh, real, real drunk at this party. Instead, he's really trying to help them uh, from this bad stereotype if they do run out of this wine. And so a little bit of context there uh, will help us. So Jesus is not encouraging us to be um, alcoholics or, or to go and get drunk. That's not what Jesus is encouraging. Matter of fact, in the Bible, uh, every time uh, it talks about people getting drunk, it's always discouraged, all right? And so it's never encouraged for people uh, to get uh, drunk in the Bible. We do see people drinking wine. Now, I was told when I was younger that every time you, you read the word wine in the Bible, it just means grape juice. 
that's just not true, all right? So if somebody told you every time you read the word wine in the Bible, it just means grape juice, that's just not true, all right? So uh, when they drink uh, wine in the Bible, uh, it did have some alcohol in it, uh, but it wasn't potent alcohol like we have today. You would have to drink a lot of wine in Jesus' time to get drunk, and people did, all right? They did drink a lot of wine, and they did get drunk, and when you look at some of the people that got drunk in the Bible, good things never came out of it, all right? Always bad things uh, came out of uh, situations like that. And so the Bible never encourages uh, to get drunk. Matter of fact, uh, the church has encouraged something different here, and Paul encourages the church in this way. This is from Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so while uh, Paul is saying this, and this is true, and if you've ever uh, gotten drunk, you know that it messes with your mind. You begin to say things and do things that you normally would not do if you were sober. And so what ends up happening here, and this is what Paul's exhortation to the church is, is that we don't be controlled by substances, all right, by, by drugs, by alcohol. We don't be controlled by those things which will change how we think. But instead, we as the church, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't do this, do this instead. And so in the Bible, uh, it's not encouraged to drink and get drunk, um, but they did use a wine and uh, they did it in a, in a, in a right way. Okay, so uh, just a, a little little point on that. I don't want anybody to walk away and say, hey, you know what? Jesus made turned water into wine, so it's okay to uh, go and get drunk uh, down at the bar. All right. John uh, 2.10 again says this, and he said to them, everyone serves the good wine. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. I wanted to point this out one more time here, what the, the master of the feast says, because I think that this is really important, his observation. Okay, so taking in what the culture was there versus what it is today, we realize that they didn't have the science and technology that we have today back then. They weren't bottling this wine and shipping it all over the place. Okay, it just didn't last that long. They didn't have that science. So what is the difference between good wine and poor wine? Now, this is what the, the master of the feast says. Notice what he says. He says, everyone serves the good wine first and then the poor wine. Now, in the world today, we might say, well, this bottle, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a wine connoisseur, um, but maybe you are and you say, yeah, such and such from the year such and such is like valued at such and such uh, dollars, and that makes it good wine versus poor wine that what comes out of a box that you get from the grocery store or from the dollar tree maybe and they would say well that's the poor wine but that's not how they're evaluating it here the master took one drink of it and he evaluated it he evaluated it on the taste rather than who bottled it or how long it had been bottled so that tells us a little bit about what this wine was. It was not old wine that had a bitter taste to it. Instead, it was new wine, fresh wine, wine that almost seemed to be prepared 
for this wedding feast. Matter of fact, he doesn't know where it comes from, says the previous verse. He's like, where did they get this? I don't know where they got this. This is some good wine, all based upon the flavor, not the old fermentation of the wine. All right. This is why it's a miracle. Everyone had access to old wine. But to have new, good wine, not everyone had access to. And that's why this is a miracle of, of Jesus. He did not just throw back some recycled wine. He made some very, very good wine for this wedding feast. So again, I don't think that what we have here is Jesus making some uh, fer uh, fermented long with lots of alcohol type of wine. Instead, this is like wine right off of the wine press. This is good wine. And immediately the man who has, I imagine, has tasted much wine, the master of the feast, tasted and he says, this is good wine. All right, enough on that. Go ahead and look. Uh, oh. All right, so when we think about that water into wine, if, if the Lord is able to change that water into wine, imagine what he can do with us. So here he took uh, some, some empty jars, filled them with water, and he made the very best wine, very best wine. And if the Lord can do that, imagine what he can do with us. Matter of fact, this is what is recorded uh, recorded for us in the book of John. This is John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Disciples of Jesus no longer walk in darkness, but in the light of life. Matter of fact, this is what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And really, as we think about that change that's happening in our life, Christ has changed us, and he continues to change us. As we give over our life to the Lord, he is continuing to change us. But note this, that that water did not turn itself into wine, okay? So that water did not go into the jars, and then that water decided, you know what, I don't want to be water, I want to be wine, and turn itself into the best wine of all. Instead, Jesus was that instrument that changed that water into wine. And the same thing is true for us as believers. True change does not come from pure effort. True change comes through Jesus Christ. And we can believe that he who started a work in us will complete that work. And so God is changing us in Christ. So Christ has changed us. We continue to change, to be conformed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So let's bring this to a close of today. Some people use this passage of the wedding of Canaan to promote alcohol and drunkenness, uh, but that is not Jesus' purpose in turning the water and the wine. Some people actually look at this and they say, see, this is actually evidence that 
that uh, God should always be a part of every wedding. And why do we know this? Because Jesus showed up at this wedding and, and performed a miracle. And that's not really the goal of, of this either, all right? There's other passages that talk about how God should be in marriage. Matter of fact, the fact that God created marriage there in Genesis is, is some pretty good evidence. But that's not this, all right? And so what, those are not the takeaways today. It is not that it's okay to uh, get drunk with alcohol because Christ made alcohol. It's not that we uh, should always have God in marriage because that's what this says. Those are, not, those are not the point. So what is the point? Well, the point is actually in verse 11. So notice there in verse 11, this kind of brings us full circle here to the beginning all the way to the end and why Jesus did what he did in the first place. In verse 11, it says this. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the reason why he turned the water into wine. All right. He wanted to reveal a little bit about who he was to his disciples. And in a way, he shined out just a little bit of who he was. Notice the words that John uses, uses, uh, uses is, <laughs> that's not the right word, that he uses is, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, th- notice here, the, ma- the um, manifested his glory. He revealed something that was true about himself, which was his power. And the response of his disciples was this, they believed in him. So this very, very first a lesson in discipleship was was a foundation of trust. It was showing them just a little bit more of who he was and, and who he was going to be further on, revealed to be. This was that first step. And what did the disciples do? They believed because of what had happened. And so this is the point of, of this first wedding, to increase the faith of his disciples. And so Jesus revealed to his disciples a little bit about who he was so that they would believe in him a little bit more. And so Jesus' points, um, point was to develop a stronger relationship with his disciples through revealing his glory uh, to his disciples. And so our question today might be, so what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And uh, again, because I, I think that what Jesus Christ is doing here is he's teaching his disciples in a similar way that we see in the Karate Kid. That he's teaching his disciples something in real life that maybe they don't fully understand yet, but they're going to continue to understand a little bit more and a little bit more. And the reason why I say this is because Christ revealed many things to his disciples, but they did not understand those things until after his resurrection. And so he was building up in them. He was discipling them. He was teaching them many things. And so what is there for us? Well, as Christians, we need to remember to be obedient to God as Christ was. Remember, if a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ, then our question ought to be, how did Christ walk? And one of the ways that we know that he lived here on earth is he was always obedient to his heavenly father. And so our goal as followers of Jesus Christ should also be obedient to our heavenly father, should be obedient to God. Second of all, we see a love for God and then a love for others 
by Jesus Christ. Again, we need to be careful that we don't accidentally flip this. Sometimes within relationships, we can begin to love people on earth more than we love God. But really, true followers of Jesus Christ have their priorities right. We love God first, and then we love others second, all right? Matter of fact, we love ourselves somewhere down the line, maybe like third down there is the idea. And so we love God first, and that was true of Christ. He was obedient, he loved others, but he loved God first. And lastly, allow Christ to continue to work in your life, all right? He is working in your life if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian. And we can, we have the ability to say no to the Holy Spirit, but that should not be our regular pattern of our life. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we can say no to the flesh and yes to God. And so may we practice that in our life. Truly, if the Lord, if Christ could turn that water into wine, he can turn this guy into a better guy, all right, as I follow after Jesus Christ. And of course, it is all based upon this idea, growing in grace and knowledge Grace is the idea of I'm not doing it by myself. God is changing me. And that knowledge is that I am relying on what I know and I'm learning more about him. And that's exactly what the disciples did in this wedding feast in um, Cana. And so they learned a little bit more about him. They, they learned a little bit more about Christ. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we think about this first uh, discipleship meeting, Lord, uh, it's not... Maybe a place that we would have our first discipleship meeting. Maybe we would sit down and have like a class time and maybe we'd go through all of the uh, Old Testament and, and talk about how, uh, how we are the Messiah. But, but this is not what John records for us. Instead, John records for us this, this first discipleship ga- gathering is, is here at a wedding. And there is a lesson uh, for us to learn. And so, Lord, we pray that as followers of you, that we would be obedient to our Heavenly Father, that we would love you before we love anything else. Not that we don't love our brothers and sisters and our mothers and fathers and our spouses. We do love them, but we love you first. And so help our love for others to come out of a relationship of love that we have uh, for you. Lastly, Lord, we thank you that we are not in a process of changing ourselves. That it's not, to, uh, it's not up to us to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But instead, you have given us your Spirit, and you are changing us into your image. Lord, help us to say no to the flesh. Help us to say yes to your Spirit. Lord, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, help us to yield our lives to you. May we truly bring you honor May we recognize you for who you are. And so, Lord, these disciples, they were growing. They didn't fully understand. Even Nathaniel here, uh, he did not believe that any good thing would come out of Nazareth. But, Lord, we know you were the best thing. You were the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You are the door to the sheep. You are the good shepherd. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to continue to grow in grace and knowledge as your disciples as well. In Jesus' name, amen.